Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with author Dr. Mark DiPaolo, who's written about um, climate fiction in uh, many different uh, pop culture pieces, um, stuff in literature and in movies. Uh, we talk a lot about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Mad Max comes up. We talk about Game of Thrones a little bit about terraforming and sci-fi. Uh, we talk, uh, and, and actually, oh, Handmaid's Tale, religious aspects of climate fiction and environmental protection. So we talk about a lot of interesting, deep issues as they are found in your favorite uh, pop culture pieces. I'm sure we're going to d- mention something that you like. Yeah, so thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark DiPaolo author of Fire and Snow, Climate Fiction from the Inklings to Game of Thrones. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you. So first, tell me, how did you get into uh, studying and writing on this subject of the book? I uh, have always been a genre fan growing up. You know, I, I grew up with, like, the Hammer horror films and comic books and uh, and I really liked ElfQuest and The Hobbit when I was a kid, um, but I, I wasn't good at reading all the fantasy book series because there were their books were so long, there were so many of them, mm-hmm. and I kept hearing things like, the series goes downhill after book three, or <laughs> the author died and his replacement is no good, you know. Mm-hmm. So I stayed away from it, and um, I had a long commute to work uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I decided to do some books on tape, and a friend said, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire is literary crack, and it's uh, it's the complete, uncensored, you know, book with a good reader. So I listened to it and paid attention mm-hmm. and enjoyed it, and it made the commute go by. And I said, you know, I never did Narnia, so I did all those audio books. And I was sort of amazed. It felt to me like... Um, Game of Thrones was rated R Narnia, mm-hmm. which sort of surprised by, you know, the winter is coming and we need the thaw and you know, they're just little thematic things and uh, then I tried to do some Tolkien I'd never read before, like Silmarillion and everything I was just picking casually or I was in the mood for it, wound up seeming to me to be this stealth environmentalist text mm-hmm. and I was particularly surprised by it because not only did the books seem to be talking to each other, but I felt like a lot of the movie adaptations didn't always emphasize that, or the television shows. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I was getting something from the books that other people might not have been noticing, especially if they hadn't read them since they were a kid or something. Mm-hmm. Now, your formal uh, degree is in... It's, um, I, I'm, I'm in English. I have a PhD in English from Drew University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a bunch of mini specializations, but I, I guess I'm a... A romanticist. I like uh, American and British romanticism, and a lot of that's focused on, you know, 19th century novels. But I also do comic book studies and uh, film studies, and I've been a journalist, so I dabble in a lot. Mm -hmm. All right, so tell me about uh, the focus of this book, then, the theme. I, uh... Okay. Uh, I knew I was seeing I was seeing these connections as I was reading the books, but I didn't know exactly what they meant, and that's how I work. You know, I uh, 
I notice it and I know it's important and I don't know why. So then I do research and I look into the lives of the authors and I try to figure out if they've read each other. I try to figure out if there's a conscious plan. And in some cases, the authors were writing very consciously about environmentalism, deforestation, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, mm -hmm. very much so. Uh, Octavia Butler, very much deliberate commentary on climate change. Uh, Philip Pullman, it seemed pretty deliberate to me because he's got the polar bears and all the ice melting and they're homeless. Mm -hmm. But it, he said he says it was an accident, <laughs> which I, I couldn't believe. <laughs> and then um, there's um, George R. R. Martin, who when he's first asked about uh, climate change, he said, no, nah, I just, when I went to college, um, it was pretty cold one winter and I always remembered that, you know. Uh, but over time, he's come to embrace that and interpretation mm -hmm. and he, he likes it because he sees it as making the books more relevant mm -hmm. so I, li I liked looking at author intention and then I said okay well now what's what do I make of this so uh, because I knew fans would would be mad at me if they thought I was just riffing on it mm -hmm. so I had to include you know some some actual facts and research and then I gave my my thematic take mm -hmm. how many different authors or series um, do you look at in this book it seems like a hodgepodge, but it's a long book, and the book kept growing. It it felt like, you know, Tolkien saying the tale told in the telling. Mm -hmm. I knew I was going to do um, Game of Thrones and uh, Narnia, and uh, I actually knew Doctor Who would be part of it because there was a very mm -hmm. conscious series of episodes and comic strips uh, spelling out to fans how much Doctor Who took from the Inklings. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, as I was writing it, you know, I saw um, Mad Max Fury Road, Snowpiercer 2012. Uh, I read The Hunger Games, and there was climate change in it that wasn't in the movies. Um, so I just kept finding new text. And then, then the trick was to keep it a manageable list of, of things so that, I, so that I wouldn't just do everything trivially. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm really happy. It winds up being a greatest hits of what's popular now because I cover Star Trek and Star Wars, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, but just kind of look at it very specifically with ecology. So it says climate fiction, though, but it sounds like you go into TV and movies as well. Yeah, um, that's the trick. Where do you draw your your boundaries? One of the things that I find boring about college courses is the extent to which they're bound by. We're just discussing British literature. We're just discussing American. We're confining it to the 18th century, mm -hmm. and I hate stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then it's like, well, what? you know, what am I going to do? I didn't want to just do books because then you just get English majors and I didn't want to just do pop culture. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was richer, you know, if I, uh, if I did both and then it's just justify it. And I think anything that riffs on themes that are important to Tolkien and Lewis on religion and ecology and, uh, and how fascism versus a kind of Christian stewardship of the earth plays out, you know, in, in allegorical ways in their books and how people pick that up who work in fantasy and science fiction whether or not they're Christian like those guys mm -hmm. they still pick up those threads so now how would you uh, sort of what's the ratio would you say where the antagonist in these these different pieces are are the source of problems with the climate versus where climate change is simply just a big danger presented in the um, in the piece. Let's see. I think 
you'll have characters in Lord of the Rings who are actively cutting trees down and actively polluting, mm-hmm. and they're doing it in the name of uh, the devil, mm-hmm. because the more the earth is polluted, the less hold God and the angels have over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pollution winds up being almost like a theological uh, weapon. <laughs> and um, so they're causing it. And in um, Philip Pullman, the bad guys are causing it. Then you'll have characters who are just not that powerful, who are villains, mm-hmm. like bad guys in the Mad Max films, what they do is they take advantage of climate change mm-hmm. to consolidate political power. Like, if they have all the water, that means they get to have all the concubines and all the power, and they get to parcel it out. Mm-hmm. You know? So, how, how many of the pieces talk about ways to reverse this, and how many would you say, just say, hey, it's dangerous, watch out, do what you need to do to stop this? Tolkien uh, is pretty uh, obsessed with how, in certain cases, when there's damage to the world, it's permanent. You know, he'll have epic battles between angels and demons where uh, the earth is just marred to the point where it just doesn't look like what God intended to make anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those wastelands that um, Frodo walks through uh, are the sites of former huge epic battles, you know, from the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. So he's like, that, you can't recover that. But in the scouring of the Shire, the um, the hobbits dismantle some of the industrial crap that the evil hobbits were building. Um, and uh, there's this idea that with, uh, you know, cleaning the river and cultivating new crops, over time they'll be able to heal it. So there's sort of a bit of both, that some stuff can be reversed and some stuff you have to live with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Did you get? It doesn't sound like you got into sci-fi terraforming or anything like that, but but perhaps you did or or thought about it. I know that uh, there's a a, can, a canonical list of stuff that you can consider climate fiction, and there's an extent to which people who care about the real world issues have mixed feelings about a lot of these, you know, movies and especially the mainstream stuff. Uh, a lot of it has bad reputations. You know, a lot of people make fun of Waterworld. Um, you know, the day after tomorrow has its heart in the right place, but the science isn't very good. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get a lot of movies like um, Kingsman, The Secret Service, and Avengers Infinity War, where you have a sort of an environmentalist terrorist villain. Mm-hmm. And like, well, what do we make of that? I mean, he's talking about the environment, and that's cool, but he's either crazy or ruthless or... You know, is this is this a plus for us? You know, getting the word out on this, mm-hmm. or is this just demonizing us and, and making it all seem rather stupid? Mm-hmm. So, uh, with the terraforming stuff, um, like Interstellar has this idea that we can't save the Earth, so we should go somewhere else. And I think a lot of environmental activists will say, "Well, it's a lot harder to go somewhere else. Who's going to go? Five people? Are we going to put a dome on Mars? Why don't we just stop?" putting plastic in the ocean mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. so that's why i didn't spend too much time on it okay um and you might have touched on this already but but uh talking about tolkien and and the religious aspect to saving the environment um would you say how how common is that um you know the, the sort of moral you know theological moralism of it versus just you know people need this help or to be protected 
I think religion comes into a lot of the texts I've looked at in a way that I didn't quite anticipate. Like, uh, Lewis was inspired to be both a Christian and an environmentalist because of Tolkien. So a lot of the same themes show up in Narnia. And, um, you know, uh, you'd think a writer like Margaret Atwood, who does Mad Adam and The Handmaid's Tale, would be very hostile to religion. But a lot of her characters are uh, religious uh, liberals, so they'll they'll be quite spiritual. But they'll they'll sort of merge Christianity with a sort of a earth goddess theology, and they'll say, you know, the fall was not Adam and Eve biting the apple ages ago. The fall is every time we hurt another living being in some way or another, and every day we decide to hurt something, that's the fall, and it can be reversed. So uh, every time I don't expect to see it. I see it, and it's uh, it's usually pretty overtly expressed in a book, and it just doesn't always make it in the movie. Like you can kind of tell reading the Hunger Games books that there's you know there's this idea that's an open secret that Suzanne Collins is a religious Catholic, mm-hmm. and it's it's woven into the book pretty subtly, but I feel like it's there, and you don't really get that from movie adaptations. Mm-hmm. Are there any other um, say secondary themes or issues? in the book that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to mention? One of the things that I couldn't figure out is why there are so many Nazis in these stories. There's a, there's a lot of that symbolism. And some of it I thought was just, you know, the golden age of science fictions, the 60s, you know, and so obviously they're going to fight the last battles and there's going to be some World War II nostalgia and Nazis are easy, you know, ready-made villains they saved hitler's brain type Mm -hmm. bad guys yeah Uh, but um i actually think that there's some smart commentary there about um kind of out of control imperial impulses married to sort of a toxic masculinity and like a conquering impulse Mm -hmm. that uh if you put that with you know completely unrestrained capitalism or uh insatiable sexual appetite what you'll get in villains will be like some sort of guy with a harem who's a rich businessman who secretly has swastikas in his closet you know who's ordering trees getting cut down Mm -hmm. and you know maybe he has an army of robots you know so these sort of um figures seem to be in almost all of these stories there's just the science fiction version who's like the space businessman like cohagen and total recall Mm-hmm. Or the more fantasy, you know, villain who have horns or something. You know. But uh, the idea that the flip side of that would be some sort of Saint Francis of Assisi or eco-feminist idea of all life is sacred and God wants us to take care of it and not distinguish between plants and animals, men and women, or have rate people by their race or how much money they make. Mm-hmm. That everybody has a right to life. So it's a sort of a a uh, philosophically pro-life, eco-feminist response to the Nazi impulse. Hmm. Interesting. So let me ask you about uh, the resources used for your research. Um, you know, the stuff you studied, it's all in pop culture, so you had easy access to that, I, I assume, to all the materials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what else did you interview people? Did you, um, what, what other things did you read or consume to, uh, assist i think 
what I needed from the living authors was pretty readily available in um, newspaper interviews and YouTube videos and NPR interviews. So uh, if the person was still alive and they really explicitly talked about the themes of the book, I, I very much went to the well with big block quotes. Mm-hmm. You know, I let them speak for themselves. And I did that also with C.S. Lewis a lot because his Christian theology is kind of odd and he's very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I think he's often seen as a super reactionary guy. And there's all these paragraphs that seem pretty hippie coming from a guy who we think of as having male pattern baldness and tweed jackets, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I heavily block quote him also. And it's a risk, you know, because people tend to gloss over block quotes. But mm-hmm. I feel like people wouldn't believe me if I just said, yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis doesn't think banning birth control is a key element of Christianity and he doesn't think regulating women's sexuality is that important you know he's he's he, you know he, he thinks sexuality is okay and if I just say that no one would believe me but if I have five block quotes from different books then suddenly uh, I'm not just going out on a limb mm-hmm. so I so I like having the, the authors speak for themselves you know but I didn't do any uh, interviews them in person because all the stuff I needed was already out there what I did was put it all together because all this stuff hasn't been compared to each other before that I know of. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you go, so it is about climate um, fiction, and you do, uh, it sounds like you talk about elements of that, but it seems like you go deeply into, somewhat into the theology and, and other aspects of the the writing and the fiction. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird combo. It was hard to get published in terms of publishers like to know who they're marketing it to. So they'll say, you know, is this book just for casual fans? Like, is it going to be a lot of photos? Or is this book for serious college professor scholars of literature? Or is this a religious handbook? Or, you know, what is this? Now, it was hard to tell them because I felt because I was writing about Tolkien and Lewis, it had to be all those things because people come to those guys for different reasons you know and I, I want to deal with all of it so there's huge chapters on the theology of the environmentalism there's a big big chapters on the politics mm-hmm. um, and uh, but I do literary criticism and film criticism and I do fan stuff and I talk about world building and the canonical history of the fictional Doctor Who universe so each chapter has like a totally different feel to it and almost feels like it belongs in a different kind of book mm-hmm. but I think the end result is I can interest all kinds of people, you know, and maybe they'll jump around or maybe they'll read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But I tried to write for lots of people instead of just a fan audience or an academic audience. Do you think in the last 10 or 15 years, um, the audience for academic studies of pop culture has grown? I think it's grown considerably. That's a, a, a guess, but do you? what do you think? I... I think so, because, well, I've, I've done a couple of expensive studies of directors, and I don't know that people are very excited about directors other than, you know, the Coen brothers, maybe, or, or Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But um, my superhero studies stuff has sold very well and much better than any normal academic book would sell. Mm-hmm. I can tell I tell professors how much I've sold, and they can't believe it, and that's all down to the fans, I think, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the more affordable presses like McFarland. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad to see it, and uh, because that's that's what I do. And mm-hmm. I, I've found a lot of good 
books on pop culture out there by my colleagues that are really readable. They're not too goofy theory, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think they're important because the pop culture stuff is a way of talking about uh, issues that really frighten people and in a way that's a little calming because, you know, I mean, I wrote about this because I'm afraid of climate change, but, mm. you know, thinking about it with Bilbo is mm. a little easier than thinking about it without Bilbo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel the same way. You know, it's, it's, it's easier to talk about the Patriot Act using Marble Civil War yeah. than just using arguments made by, you know, Secretary of State or Michael Moore, you know that suddenly that's much more fraught mm-hmm. yeah. than Captain America and Iron Man. Yeah. Um, what in the research? What, what part of the research was most enjoyable? I think there were a couple of stages where I got stuck, and that was no good. But I, I really, I, I really enjoyed writing it as a whole um, because I like not knowing what I'm writing about, even. 200 pages in because I'll start a project knowing there's something there and I just follow it and I enjoy trying to figure out what I'm writing and I was lucky I had a couple of friends one who was a big Tolkien fan one who's a religious studies scholar uh, one who's a ecologist and I'd show them it as it's going along I said do you know where this is going and they'd give me some tips or I sort of group wrote it on Facebook where my friends will say I found a source you bet you didn't know this was true about Tolkien and until, up until the very last minute, I was still finding out great stuff. Like, um, I didn't know Tolkien wrote a short story about what it's like to be an inkling that made fun of all the other guys. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> really important to what I'm saying. Where is that? And it's in, you know, volume nine of these fragments that his son has been publishing. And mm-hmm. I never would have found that if my friends hadn't helped. So just the fact that up until the page proofs. I'm sneaking in references to The Last Jedi and mm-hmm. you know, uh, Infinity War at the last second and you know, laughing to myself that people are going to wonder how I got the book so up to date when it's a book. <laughs> you know, that w- that just made me giddy. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you mentioned being surprised by all the Nazi uh, characters you came across. Was there anything else in your research that surprised you? Well, let's see. Um, I think I just kept being surprised by how much books written so long ago seemed so relevant now and how much Tolkien and Lewis saw coming, especially since people tend to think of them as people that look to the past, you know, purely nostalgic thinkers. To have them more seem more like prophets seemed uh, odd to me. But, uh, you know, I, I read a, a discussion of how corporate forces could take over colleges and fire teachers and and defang curriculum and just make it about job training based on market values of majors and this was in uh, Lewis's 1945 That Hideous Strength Hmm. and it's very much describing what's going on with colleges now so Hmm. you know something like that's pretty odd and and I'd notice that and I'd also notice hey you know this is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix that's interesting so I would notice all those things at once, and I would just keep being surprised. And and the extent to which I think I'm taking a break from the book, and I'll try reading something for fun, and it would wind up being related to the book. And it was really weird. <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's a, that the the messages are hidden in everything, all pop yeah. culture. And it's important to me. You know, I have friends who don't like 
the escapist stuff I like. They'll say, oh, you don't, you're dumb action movies and you're dumb comic books. And, and I'll say, you know, this is deeper than you think. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I would argue, uh, one of the reasons I came up with the idea for the book was my wife accused me of watching the HBO Game of Thrones just for the breasts. And I was like, no, no, there's more going on here. And there's more than just Tyrion being funny. You know, what is it? You know, and so that was the beginning of this process. I, the, defend myself from the sex position uh, scenes and their impression on my wife but um, I, you know the, uh, an accusation I get is you know you're elevating this material because you're smarter than it and you're seeing stuff in it that's not there hmm. and what was nice as I did this was the extent to which I was able to build a case that no it's there you know and now I can comment on it you know it's not I just have to make this stuff up mm-hmm lowbrow can't can't ever get any respect i guess yeah. I, I don't you can't even call it lowbrow but whatever the term would be for pop pop culture well, and i think i think the trick is with i my grandfather just loved nonfiction. he just loved science books and he said fiction is just fundamentally useless you know it doesn't matter how serious the subject matter is mm-hmm. and um there's a great uh literary essay by flannery o'connor and she says only cowards refuse to read fiction because fiction is a direct plunge into the heart and you, you think you're running from reality with fiction but you're running right into everything mm-hmm. and the same thing with Tolkien and Lewis on the one hand you you like elves like I can't even relate to them mm-hmm. I mean at least superheroes are in New York you know that, <laughs> right I mean but uh, at the same time you know they want to forget that all their friends died in World War One and they want to forget that their parents died young, and they want to forget that all the trees in their childhood neighborhood are getting cut down, mm-hmm. and yet they're writing books in, which, in a fictional reality with elves in which trees are getting cut down and people get butchered by invading armies. Mm-hmm. So that's their escapism. It seems like they're running right to the trench warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and if you, on the surface, it just seems like a bunch of elves, but if you really, if you really pay any attention at all, Man, that, that's what some of the that's like Wilfred Owen World War One poetry. Mm. You know, it's right in there. Yeah. So, what was the most difficult point uh, to research? Either a question you still don't feel you have a solid answer on, or something that just took the longest to to reach a conclusion on. I'm embarrassed by this, but I. When I was an undergrad, I, I studied medieval studies as a minor because I wanted to understand my Catholicism. And I really liked the weirdo astronomy they did before they understood what the solar system was really like. So there these strange medieval texts like the Cosmographia of Bernardus Silvestris. And I can't even believe I studied that stuff. But <laughs> it, it was fun for me. Mm-hmm. And my friend at the time said, you know... Um, Tolkien loved all that, and he did his own riff on it, and he wrote the Silmarillion. You're gonna, you're gonna love it. And uh, in theory, I should, but I actually find it harder to read than the original medieval texts. Hmm. And I, I'm, I'm frustrated. Like I, I wish I found it easier to read because actually the plots really speak to me. Hmm. But the fun, the hardest part of the book to me was I would have to go to my friend Bill, who's been reading Tolkien since he was about seven, hmm. to translate. Some of the stuff on the Silmarillion for me. So be like, well, who's the the Maiar? Who who's in charge of the water and who's in who's in charge of the air and <laughs> when did this battle happen? You know, and he would have to. So he, I I really relied on him for those parts of the book. But it was fun because it was 
an excuse to talk to my old friend. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's where I feel like I feel dumb during those segments. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and not like the poser talking guy. But I feel <laughs> completely confident in everything else. And But if I'm ever asked about uh, his, uh, you know... I think the specifics of his universe that you know, draw a map of Middle Earth. I'd be like, uh, I'll get my friend Bill. Yeah. But if, but the morals, the basic morals, the basic themes, uh, how he defines heroism, I, I'm very comfortable talking about that. Yeah, the deep history is is kind of hard to to get a hold of. Well, if somebody wants to destroy me by trying to get me to speak Elvish or something, they they they're they're wide open. You know, they could do that. <laughs> Um, was there anything you discovered in your research that emotionally moved you in any way, either negatively or positively? Honestly, the whole thing, because, uh, I, uh, I don't know. When I, when I was a kid, I would go out into nature. And, anyway, I guess it was just overgrown parts of Staten Island. My dad would show me praying mantises and uh, monarch butterflies and we'd look at lightning bugs in the evening and and a lot of uh, cheap housing would go up and they'd cut all that away and get rid of it and mm -hmm. and I felt bad because we were the benefit of that cheap housing we were Italian immigrants who had enough money to buy our own house and mm -hmm. we moved into Staten Island and my relatives make lots of money putting up houses in New Jersey and so I benefited from it, but I also miss the fireflies and the praying mantises and the butterflies. So it's, mm -hmm. um, it's something that, um, is really central to me. And I've run from it my whole life. I've been scared of it my whole life. So this was therapy and everything I read helped me either mourn or have hope or just manage the fear. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Especially since the authors, the other thing that's kind of neat about it, they have different religions, different political parties, might not even like each other. Mm. Like Gnostics, Christian, like a Catholic, a Protestant, a Muslim, Jewish, mm. and they just all seem like decent people. You know, and I kind of get the sense that like, if I made a think tank for helping the environment and put them all on it, that they actually might get along. And mm. that was sort of inspiring to me too, the idea that, you know, at least we all want clean drinking water and, you know, there's certain things we can get together on in theory, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's what Game of Thrones is about, actually, in the end, this idea that there are some things that are bigger than the Starks and the Lannisters, and a few of them will never let go of their rage, mm -hmm. but a lot of them will if the stakes get high enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah. Which is funny because it seems like in the end quite a hopeful moral for something that has so much butchery and rape. <laughs> it yeah. feels like uh, the end moral with the bow on it is a Captain Kirk speech about making peace with the Klingons. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something to chew on. Um, what do you hope the book will do? In a way, one of my target audiences is people who um, have been have a pretty stereotypical view of Tolkien and Lewis to try to expand that and um, and to try to get religious Christians who have been kind of weirdly on the side of the oil industry and 
pro-pollution to kind of rethink that mm. um, because these guys really say, no, only a Satanist would be pro-pollution. It's a preposterous notion. Don't be with Sauron. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I can... Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to fool anybody, but one of the things that's interesting about the books I write is I tend to focus on the National Review canon of literature, like the Jane Austen, superheroes, uh, the Inklings. But I, I always kind of say, you know, there's a subversive quality of these texts, and and what I find is some of the people who read my stuff say, all right, I don't agree with the word you say, but you really, you've done your research and you're interesting and you seem nice, but, you know, don't come over to my house. Mm. Or, um, or, or people say, oh, it's pretty balanced. Or people say, oh, this is biased crap and I hate every page. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I've gotten that sort of gamut of reviews. Mm. So I guess I just, I, I, um, I am trying to get people to broaden their definition of Christianity and I am, and I'm trying to get people who look at pop culture to see more in it that I see to train them to be better readers of pop culture and they can, okay, I've focused on ecology and maybe they want to focus on gender or race or, or anything they're interested in. I, I've modeled that and, you know, my Game of Thrones is not necessarily somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And I guess the last thing would be, you know, maybe raising some environmental awareness. Mm -hmm. So I, I had a bunch of, a bunch of goals there, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. But and I wrote it to defeat my own demons. And what's been nice is the people who've read it say, you know, this is clearly your stealth autobiography, and only you could have written this, but it speaks to me anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's been kind of nice. That's cool. Yeah. Can you speak to any difficulties you had in finishing the book or getting it published, and how you overcame those? Oh, it was hard to get published. Um, I uh, I was in a religion conference in Texas and I spoke to Baylor University mm -hmm. and this part of me wanted to put it out with a pretty conservative religious te uh, press hmm. and they, they they thought it was too edgy and it wasn't pure religious studies enough and you know I would try it with a literary publisher and they'd say well there's too much film and comic book and TV in it or I'll go to a pop culture publishers and they'll say there's too much literary studies in it um i had one who was initially really interested they just loved the marketability of everybody i had mm -hmm. like this is great but when i handed it in where our deal fell apart was it was very important to me to say okay who are the bad guys in snowpiercer who are the bad guys in the strain and total recall and mad max well, let's identify them in the news. And I started to actually identify them. And they were like, oh, this is, this is way too edgy. We thought this was going to be a cute book about Lord of the Rings. And this is really, <laughs> this is really offensive, you know. And, um, so, uh, I thought about it and I said, well, am I just some activist and I'm, am I, you know, disguising myself as a reasonable college teacher or sci-fi geek and I'm just a nut or, are they just timid and censoring me? And and I just thought about it. There's so many fan books about Tolkien. Like, what makes this different? Like, my take on their, the way they think and, and the way I connect them to more modern texts. That's what, so to take all the contemporary stuff out is to kind of defang the book and ruin the point of it. So I stuck to my guns. Mm -hmm. I just toned it down a little without sacrificing the content. You know, I pulled out a few rants, you know, mm -hmm. and um, 
I'm glad they made me tone it down, and I'm glad they made me put in some more traditional sources. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I'm glad I stuck to my guns, and I had to go to a different publisher because they said, yeah, you're not changing this enough. Mm-hmm. And SUNY is in New York, and they got a hippie edge, so they're like, yeah, do what you want to do. <laughs> and I got, I got to put out a book that was more rigorous thanks to the first publisher I dealt with. Mm-hmm. It's still my book thanks to the one that actually printed it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's a, that's a yeah. cool story. Yeah, it was hard. There was a moment there when I, was, I didn't have a publisher, and I was like, well, am I just being stubborn? You know, is this now just going to be in my desk? But it was important enough to me. I didn't want it to. They, they wanted the length halved, no pictures. But now I've got a nice, huge book with 45 pictures, so I'm, I'm pretty pumped. That's pretty that came out pretty. So what's your next writing project? Well, I uh, I wrote an intro to an uh, anthology on working class comic book heroes, and it's got essays by friends of mine about you know Walking Dead and V for Vendetta, and there's also coverage of all the Netflix superheroes. They'll get their own essay, like Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. I snuck the thing in there because he was my favorite when I was a kid. So that just came out, um, and I'm excited about that. I think that'll get. I really feel like one book on ecology and one on class warfare. I'm really, I got my finger on the pulse here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what <laughs> I've been toying with doing horror movies and me too. So I get the gamut of everything going on now. Um, because there's so many interesting horror movies where a director will basically do an allegory for their terrible marriage only put a werewolf in it or something Mm -hmm. and they'll say in the commentary track yeah this happened to me this is my wife i made her a werewolf (laughs) and uh it's it's happened on enough commentaries of these scream factory blu-rays i've been watching like, well what does this mean you know especially with me too going on you know if you if the brood is autobiographical and brian de palma's movies are autobiographical and and it's beginning to look like Tarantino's death proof is his confession for what he did to Uma Thurman. Yeah. Uh, what's what's that all about, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a, a director who accidentally killed two children and an actor uh, making Twilight Zone the movie, mm-hmm. and he seemed to do some sort of confession piece in Masters of Horror, Dear Woman. So I think what do these confessions mean, especially if the statements of the press and on trial mm-hmm. were pretty... It wasn't my fault, but the movie they made after seemed to be, yes, it was. Hmm. Uh, what does all that mean? And how do I supposed to feel about it as a fan of their work? You know, it, I don't want to be too quick to forgive them. I don't want to see them never work again. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to feel about it. And that's, that's always how I come up with an idea for a story or, or book. If I don't know how I feel about something, I write it to figure it out. And it's just important enough to me that I'm... I think I'll do it sometime in the future, but it's not keeping me up at night. So I'm not really that worried about how I feel about Tarantino. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's something that interests me. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question to explore. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, like does, does Louis C.K. never work again, or has he come back too soon, or can he come back in five years? Mm-hmm. Or and am I only interested in when his comeback is because I'm a dude? Mm-hmm. You know, so these are, I don't know. I, I, I'm very into ethics, and, you know, I probably should calm down about it. Well, I mean, it says, a lot, it, you know, it doesn't just say something about the creators. It says something about the people who, their audience, you know, their their feelings and their, 
um, their own ethics, what they what they accept, what they think they accept, you know, if they're fooling themselves or not. Yeah. Well, and horror is, uh, I guess when I was a kid, I liked horror because I liked the romanticism of it, you know. Oh, it's in Germany in 17th century and Dracula can command wolves and he can live forever and he has wine and a harem, you know. <laughs> I like the, the stuff that wasn't actually scary. Um, and then there's the endurance tests. Can you handle watching the slasher movie? It's the most violent one ever and prove you're tough and uh and then i, I realized i kind of liked um these confessional ones where people had a tragedy in their lives and they're sneaking that into the movie mm-hmm. i was like well this is more deep than usual this is more deep than can i make a movie that's scarier than evil dead mm-hmm. like what does this mean yeah because like what's horror for you know because that's another thing you know, people I care about walk by and I'm watching horror and they go, why are you watching this for fun? This is not fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I ask myself, well, why am I watching Hellraiser 1? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it ain't Bambi, you know, so. Or you, or that show Evil versus, uh, or Ash versus the Evil Dead, I think. Yeah. Which is <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> That, yeah, I, I saw a season of it and I was really enjoying it. And there was some wild stuff about his racism. Like, he, he's, he's a racist guy with Hispanic friends. And I was like, this is interesting. Yeah. But it was so violent. Like, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a bit much. <laughs> but what else would you expect from, from that franchise, oh, so yeah. to speak? Yeah. I mean, and the first one, I, I, it took me years to watch because I was scared. And when I was on, I was like, yeah, this is. I believe everything in horror movies. I have friends that be like, oh, I could tell that's fake. And, you know, no, I trick myself because that's the way I enjoy stuff. And, and so I scare the crap out of myself watching the Blair Witch Project in the basement with the lights off. Hmm. You know, I'm not the sort of person that goes, that wouldn't happen in real life. I can see the wires. No, I, I want the movie to work. But then why? Why do I want? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think I am too. You know, I really get into it and take it for what it is. Uh, yeah, like, I, I'll say, okay, yeah, this character should have gone to the bathroom by, like, Jack Bauer should have gone to the bathroom. Well, he probably went in a commercial. Like, I don't need to find an error, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll just I'll just go with it. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't know that Bauer could go to Mexico and come back in less than 24 hours and save the world, that's a little much. <laughs> now they're stretching it, yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't go to and from Oklahoma City from Weatherford in seventy miles in a, in a day. You know. Yeah. So, where can people find the book and any other writing you do, say on social, you know, social media accounts or anything like that? Well, here's the deal. This is a good book, but if you look it up now, it'll be a hardcover for ninety five dollars, and you're gonna be like, "Yeah, I'm never gonna read that." But the publisher thinks it's gonna be big i think so they're going to put out a soft cover pretty soon in a few months so maybe just be a little patient and right around january there should be an affordable 30-ish dollar version and i put my soul into this so i guarantee you if you're interested in any of those topics you should get something out of it even if i'm a little quirky for you Hmm. um uh i'm pretty proud of war politics and superheroes um that's even more fanish and less academic than this. That's already out. That's like in the $30 range. And that's just like the war on terror and superhero movies and, and the original Civil War is a centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud of that. Uh, and um, 
Yeah, so if you look me up on Amazon, they have all my books. And I've, I've done some religious studies stuff on, you know, being Catholic or different ways of reading the Gospels. And I've, I've done some movie criticism. And so it's kind of a variety of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, but yeah, it's all there on Amazon. And I, I'd love to see some of the stuff get in a regular bookstore, but it's mm-hmm. just academic enough. Maybe a place in the village or mm-hmm. some, some boutique comic book stores I've seen my stuff in. Mm-hmm. And social media accounts, you don't have uh, platforms? I tried it for a while, but I wound up getting into big fights with people over Anita Sarkeesian, so I decided to not do it anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. But I don't know. Maybe I uh, uh, maybe I should try it again. I'm just, I feel like I'm very reasonable mm-hmm. and easy to talk to until I'm on social media, and then I get dumb and angry. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yep, I know what you're saying. Um, I, I think I think you can only really talk about politics and religion with somebody that you love and trust, who thinks slightly different than you, mm-hmm. and maybe in seven years they can nudge you. Mm-hmm. But this whole yelling at somebody you've never met, yeah, I, I just hate fighting with a friend of a friend or a relative of a friend I've never met in person on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that is and awkward. I, when I, and, and it goes on a whole day, you know. If I could just talk about how cool I think Tom Baker is on. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> you know, then I would totally have a Twitter account, but you know, yeah, that it, 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 it won't take long before people ask me what I think of Joey Whitaker, and then suddenly it's going to get pretty hairy pretty fast. <laughs> so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or words? I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, and thanks for contacting me. And uh, you know, it's, I've you know worked on this five years, so. Just thanks for listening, and to everybody who's listening, thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, Please give me a good rating if you like this, or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H, so it's C R I S. A-L-V-A-R-E-Z dot com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.